Christians are really strange. I mean, just think about it for a second. Last week, we talked about eating a man's flesh and drinking his blood. We sing songs and lift our hands to an invisible being. We dunk each other in water. You know, we're really weird. But perhaps what's most strange about Christians is that we worship a crucified God. I mean, if I were on the market for a religion, I'd choose the one with the God who's almighty, who's strong, who's invulnerable. You know, other religions worship an all-powerful God, a glorious God, a victorious God. But we worship a crucified God. There's nothing particularly unique about a religion that worships a resurrected, powerful, victorious God. The ancient world was full of such religions. And that's not to say that the God we worship isn't all-powerful and almighty and victorious. But he's also the crucified God. No other religion worships a God who would willingly step into the humiliation and death the way that our God did. Christianity is the only religion to have as its central focus the suffering and the degradation of its God. Easter alone doesn't make Christianity unique. It's with Good Friday and Easter together that we find the uniqueness of Christianity. In 1 Corinthians one twenty three. Paul writes, but we preach Christ crucified, a scandal to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. What we see here is the greatest scandal of all time, the giver of life put to death, the creator crucified by his creation for the sake of love. And all of this is wrapped up in perhaps the most prominent symbol of our faith, the cross. The cross is more than just a fashion statement for Gen Zers to wear on their ears or Jesus peace necklaces from your favorite rappers. The cross is the sign that saves the world. If people were to ask, what is the Christian faith all about? We'd point to the cross. If people were to ask, what is God like? We'd point to the cross. If people were to ask, what is real love? We'd point to the cross. The cross is the epicenter of our faith. It's what holds all of this together. Yet I find so many of us fundamentally misunderstand what exactly happened on the cross. What exactly did Jesus do and what does it mean for us today? And so that's what we're going to explore today as we continue our collection in the symbols of Christ. We're going to dive deeper into the cross, but let me open us up in a word of prayer. Holy Spirit, we invite you right here, right now. Would you come and fill this place? I pray that this teaching would awaken our hearts so that we can see your work on the cross for what it really was. And that we can understand how we are to live knowing what you did for us. We love you, God. Would you put your spirit and your breath of life on this teaching? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, why don't we go to Romans chapter 5, verse 8, very famous verse, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I think most of us understand that Jesus died for our sins. I mean, if you ask any Sunday school student, any Christian in the pews on Sunday mornings, if you ask, what did Jesus do for us? We'd understand that he died for our sins. But I find there's a few misconceptions that we have about how all of this played out. 
Now, one famous story that you might have heard um, throughout your entire life as a believer, maybe it was in youth or in children's ministry or in college or recently, I don't know, maybe your pastor told you the story, but a lot of people tell the story to illustrate what Jesus did for us on the cross, and it's a story about the bridge conductor. If you know the story, there's this bridge conductor who, um, you know those bridges that go up and come down, and so the bridge conductor presses the lever, and so the bridge comes down so that the train that's coming could cross over the water safely, and then the bridge conductor pulls the lever again so the bridge goes up so boats could get by in the water. Well, there's a story that, that people are saying God is like this bridge conductor, and one day he decides to bring his son along with him to work. And while the father is busy on, you know, the machines, making sure the lever's pulled every time that the boat comes or the train comes, off in the distance, his son is playing and going, na, 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 and he falls into one of the areas where all the gears are turning. And so the father didn't realize all this is happening. All of a sudden, off in the distance, the father realizes that a train is coming, and so he has to get ready to pull the lever. But right at that instant, he catches on the side of his eye, his son is in the area where the gears are. And so he has this terrible dilemma and a terrible choice that he has to make. Either he presses the lever and kills his son so that all the people on the train can be saved, or he doesn't press the lever, saves his son, and all the people on the train crash and die. And so, illustrating the father's tough decision, the bridge conductor presses the lever, crushes his son in the gears so that everyone in the train can be saved and not die. You know, most of you have probably heard this illustration before as your pastor or the teacher illustrated this as um, an understanding of what happened on the cross. And while it's heart-wrenching and dramatic, it's just not biblical. The main issue with this story, first of all, is that these unfortunate circumstances are happening to the father and the son, and they're simply reacting, right? The father, he's going about his business, and he's caught off guard, and he has to make this awful, difficult decision. The son is completely helpless, just whistling and skipping along and accidentally stumbling into his predicament. Not to mention that the people on the train are just these bystanders who just happen to be on the train headed toward destruction. They have no weighing in on what's going on right here. The thing we have to understand is that the cross didn't just happen to Jesus. The cross didn't catch the father off guard. Jesus was fully aware, even during his lifetime, that every teaching about the kingdom, every miracle he performed, every meal he shared with sinners was upsetting the religious and those in power, thus ultimately sealing his fate. I mean, think about that. Every sermon that he preached, every healing, every act of love he performed, he did so knowing that these were the things that would get him arrested and eventually killed. And he still did it anyway. In fact, the moment that sealed Jesus's fate, a lot of scholars believe that sent him to the cross was when Jesus stirred in anger, cleansed the temple and drove out all the corrupt leaders who were exploiting all the the people. In other words, Jesus's ministry, Jesus's activism cost him something. And maybe to put it in more relatable terms, Jesus wasn't the type to share a social media post and just be done with it. Right? We see a Savior who is willing to go to the cross for the broken, the oppressed, the unseen. We see a Savior who is willing to suffer and die for the people he loved. 
In other words, the cross didn't happen to Jesus. Jesus happened to the cross. The cross didn't catch the Father off guard. The cross was always part of the plan. And so we see this illustration does not do justice to what God and Jesus did on the cross. But there's a second image that may come to mind when we think of the cross that I think is actually worse. is that of an angry dad, right? An angry father, a God who must punish us for disobeying him. But in order to satisfy his need for justice, he pours out all of his wrath upon his innocent son instead of us. You know, this is what many of us learned growing up, but this is also not biblical. The message about an angry God and an innocent victim actually has a lot more in common with ancient pagan thought than with ancient Jewish or Christian thought. This understanding of the cross paints God as sharing the petty attributes of the pagan gods whose bloodlust could only be satisfied by child sacrifice. You know, one of the gods at the time that was very prominent was this god named Moloch. He was one of these pagan gods that required the sacrifice of children. It was grotesque. It was disgusting. But people would sacrifice these young, innocent children to appease the wrath and the bloodthirst of this god named Moloch. You know, we hear this and, you know, we read about this, about this awful God named Moloch and people sacrificing innocent children to him. We all, we all have a problem with sacrificing children to Moloch, but all of a sudden we're okay with God sharing the same attributes as his terrible God. This is not our Yahweh. God is not like Moloch. But unfortunately, over the last thousand years, the Western church has drifted into this idea that God required the violent death of his son in order to satisfy and pay off his justice. And it's no wonder why so many of us have trouble seeing God as a good father because we ask, what kind of father does that? What kind of father sends his son to such a violent death just to satisfy his own bloodthirst? just to pay off his justice. You see, when the cross is viewed through the theological lens of punishment, God is seen as this violent being who can only be appeased by a violent ritual sacrifice. In other words, God needed someone to punish, someone to pour his wrath upon, and instead of it being us, God chose Jesus to be his whipping boy. And those who are formed by this theology harbor a deep-seated fear that God is this menacing deity from which they need to be saved. But I want to ask you, is this true? Is this our God? Is this our Yahweh? Is God a vengeful giant who must vent his wrath upon sinners with almighty fury? Or is God a co-suffering lover whose nature is unconditional forgiveness? What we see on the cross is not divine child abuse. The cross is many things, but it's not a quid pro quo to appease an angry God. And above all things, the cross is the ultimate revelation of the very nature of God. At the cross, Jesus doesn't save us from God. At the cross, Jesus reveals God as Savior. See, when we look at the cross, we don't just see what God does. We see who God is. 
The cross is not a picture of payment. The cross is a picture of forgiveness. Good Friday is not about divine wrath. Good Friday is about divine love. The cross is not where God finds a whipping boy to vent his rage upon. The cross is where God saves the world through self-sacrificing love. And the thing that we have to understand is that God didn't kill Jesus. Human culture and civilization did. God didn't demand the death of Jesus. We did. And Calvary isn't where we see how violent God is. Calvary is where we see how violent we are. And we see it right here. If we go to Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15, Jesus is arrested. And this is the moment before he is sent to the cross. And we go to verse 1, and this is what uh, Mark records. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now, it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Now, when you read this story, do you see a God who is requiring violence or the people that are requiring violence. You see, it was in the best interest of the religious leaders for Jesus to die. Why? Because their power was being threatened, their order was being challenged, and they would go to any lengths to preserve their power, even going so far as to releasing a murderer over an innocent man. It doesn't get more scandalous than this. This is the scandal of the century. The sacrificial killing of Jesus was not desired by God. It was required by us. The people were shouting, crucify him, crucify him. It wasn't God the Father that was longing for Jesus to be crucified. It was the people. It was us. The cross didn't just happen to Jesus. These people weren't just having a bad day. They knew what they were doing. Humanity was responsible. We're responsible for the violence on the cross. And we, we see it and feel it today, don't we? Especially this last year, especially this, this last week with Black Lives Matter and all the uh, anti-Asian hate and sentiments. Our propensity for violence and hatred is palpable now more than ever before. And we see it. Everything about this scene was ugly. You know, sometimes we try to sanitize the cross, but we don't really realize how gruesome it really was. 
You see, by design, crucifixion was one of the worst ways that you could be executed. It was meant to be a slow and painful death. It was meant to be humiliating and agonizing. You see, crucifixion was a means of social and political control for all the people in power. See, the cross was a way of saying Caesar and Rome run this world, and this is what happens if you get in our way. If we go a a few verses down in Mark chapter 15, verse 33, we see exactly how gruesome and ugly the cross was. In verse 33, it says, At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. You know, I used to read this passage, and you know, we focus on Jesus crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so we we think that, man, God is this violent being that's doing all this to him, all this to his innocent son. But actually, this these few verses weren't meant to illustrate the the father's thirst for violence, but it shows humanity's, our thirst for violence. So when I read this, I never really understood what was going on, like why Elijah, all this stuff. But in this passage, what what was happening right before this is they put a bag over Jesus' head. And they were punching his face repeatedly. They were punching him so much and so hard that his eyes were getting swollen, his teeth were getting knocked out. And in this agony, as he was getting his face punched in, he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani. And his face was so swollen that it sounded like he was crying out, Elijah, Elijah. When he was crying out, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, his face was so swollen. Everyone listening, everyone that was around him thought he was saying, Elijah, Elijah. I mean, your face has to be so swollen if what you're saying is perceived as something else by everyone listening. And so the people nearby, they're hearing Elijah, Elijah, and they're mocking him. They're saying, look, he's calling out for Elijah to save him. Where's Elijah? When's he coming? And they were mocking him. See, this passage shows the brutality and the violence of humanity. And this is how gruesome the cross was. And Jesus was enduring all of this, not to satisfy the bloodlust of his father. But he was enduring all of this because of us and for us. We sent Jesus to the cross. Our sin sent him there to suffer and die. Our human propensity for violence and hatred and ugliness is what sent him there. In 1 John 4.10, this is love. Not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins to save us from ourselves and to usher in a new order, a kingdom not of violence and oppression, but of shalom and peace. This is why Jesus willingly goes to the cross and lays down his life. This Roman cross That was an instrument of imperial violence. 
is transformed by Jesus in this moment into a symbol of divine love. The violence part of the cross was entirely human, but the forgiveness part of the cross is entirely divine. We see here God's nature revealed in love, not in violence. And it's here at Golgotha that the ugliness of human sin is overcome by the beauty of divine love. We see a man laying his life down for his friends. We see a savior paying the price for humanity's sin. We see a God stepping into suffering and death to reconcile the world that he loves. In 2 Corinthians 5.19, For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. This wasn't divine child abuse. This was an act of divine love and self-sacrifice. A God stepping into the human condition to undo all the damage we had done to ourselves. For it was God in Christ. And as long as we think Jesus died for God instead of dying for us, we'll never see the sinfulness of humanity and the beauty of the divine alternative, the kingdom of God. See, the justice of God is not retributive justice, which says an eye for an eye. You hurt me, so I'll hurt you back. In the end, that kind of justice changes nothing. But the justice of God is restorative justice. God is setting the world right, not by punishing the innocent. Jesus didn't shed his blood to buy God's forgiveness. Jesus shed his blood to embody God's forgiveness. The crucifixion is not what God inflicts upon Jesus in order to forgive. The crucifixion is what God in Christ endures as he forgives. And so these illustrations about the bridge conductor and an angry dad just don't do justice to what exactly happened on the cross. Perhaps a better image than the God as the bridge conductor operator, or God as an angry dad, is Lily Potter. If you remember from the Harry Potter franchise, the story in the very beginning, uh, Voldemort's coming and he knows that he has to kill Harry because he's the chosen one. And so he comes in with his wand and as he breaks into the room where Harry is, he gets ready, picks up his wand and he's casting the curse of death. But what happens at the moment he casts that curse? Harry's mother, Lily, steps in front without any thought for herself, without any regard for her well-being, she steps in front of her son and takes the curse of death and dies. A mother who loved her son so much that as the curse of death was cast to kill him, she stepped in to take the curse instead, who gave her life for love and whose self-sacrificing love becomes the very thing that protected her son and was the key to overcoming evil. Jesus was like Lily Potter. Jesus stepped in front of the curse of death for us, not to appease an angry dad, but to save the one he loves. We worship a crucified God, a man of sorrows. I mean, what other God is like our God? In every other religion, can you find a God who's willing to step into our human experience to endure our pain, our suffering, our heartbreak, 
A God who's willing to give his life to save us from our own sin. A God crucified by his creation who reconciles us back to him. This is our God. One of my favorite artists and musicians is a man named John Mark McMillan, who is best known for his song, How He Loves. Most people don't know that he actually wrote that song, and he has a version of it, which is so beautiful before it got bastardized. Anyway, he sings this song called The Road, The Rocks, and The Weeds, and I think this song perfectly illustrates the kind of God that we worship. In the song, The Road, The Rocks, and The Weeds, in the bridge, he sings, And Aphrodite would not weep, nor Zeus would suffer for the weak. But have you come to stand inside my pain? And all the things I've begged you for, eternity and evermore, are hidden with me here beneath the rain. You know, he's making this comparison between the Greek gods who would not weep or suffer for the weak, but our God steps into our pain. And then in one of the pre-choruses, he sings this. Well, I've got no answers for heartbreaks or cancers, but a God who's, who suffers them with me. Singing good God, goodbye Olympus, the heart of my maker is spread out on the road, the rocks and the weeds. I think a lot of us know what it's like to be spread out on the road, the rocks and the weeds. I think a lot of us know what it's like to feel heartbreak, feel pain, feel the hardship of the human experience. I think a lot of us are familiar with cancer, are familiar with sickness and disease and death. And I want you to know that when we look at the cross, we see the heart of our maker is spread out on the very things that wound us so, the very things that make life so hard, the very things that cause us pain and heartbreak, the very things that, that cause us so much sorrow. Our God stepped in to those things for us, who suffers them not just for us, but with us. This is our crucified God. And this is what we should see when we look at the cross. Now, there are a few takeaways that I want us to understand about Jesus on the cross. And the first is this. God cares about our suffering and our pain. He cares about our grief. He's not a God who's unconcerned with the human struggle. He empathizes with our pain because he stepped into it and suffered it. You know, perhaps at a time when many of us feel like our stories of pain and grief have historically been erased, the cross reminds us that God will not overlook our suffering. God will not write over our story with the cheesy Christian slogan. No, he meets us in the ugliness and the pain of our suffering. He's here in our mourning. He's here in our frustration. He's here in our protest. He's the God of the foreigner. He's the God of the immigrant. He's the God of the overlooked and the unseen, the God of those who are suffering. Recently, I, you know, I was writing this song and this line just came to me that really impacted me. And, and the, the, the revelation that I got was, God, if you're going to meet us in the miracle, you'll also meet us in the funeral. 
And isn't that our God, that he cares about our suffering and our pain enough that he meets us in those very places? And so we see on the cross, God cares about our suffering and our pain. But number two, God refuses to leave things as they are. You see, what happened at the cross was more than just a purchase for a one-way ticket to heaven. The cross was where the veil between heaven and earth was completely torn. You know, last week we talked about how the Celts, the Celts had this concept of thin, right? The, the thinness of the veil between heaven and earth it was getting thinner and thinner so that heaven and earth were becoming one. The cross was where heaven and earth, the veil between it was thin and was completely torn. The cross was where death was put to death, where a new order was rushing in, a kingdom of shalom, where we see pain and death and injustice. We see the cross and we remember that God has come to make all things right. His love is too good to leave us here. And in all the the horrible things that we face and experience in, in our humanity, we can trust that God refuses to leave things as they are. That there is coming a day when everything will bow to the order of God's kingdom, where shalom will be experienced. This is our crucified God. This is the cross. I just want to close by a quote by Brian Zond, who actually a lot of this teaching was adapted from his teaching about the cross. And he says this, At last, we know that God is not like the thunderbolts hurling Zeus or any of the other angry gods in the pantheon of terrorized religious imagination. God is like Jesus, nailed to a tree, offering forgiveness. Let's pray. God, how often we get it wrong. How often we get it so mixed up and confused about who you are, about your very nature. How often we misunderstand the most important things that you've done for us. Today, I pray that we would overwrite our misconceptions of you as an angry God. Or as a God who just happened to stumble into this predicament of you know, sending your innocent son to die. No, I pray that today we would overwrite that with the image of a God who would step into our human experience, who would endure all the suffering and the pain that we experience on a daily basis, who would die not to appease an angry father, but for us, for the sake of love and forgiveness. I pray that today we would remember that we were the ones that sent you to the cross. That it was our need and our thirst for violence and death that put you there and not God's. Today I pray that we would see you as a self-sacrificing, forgiving symbol of love. We love you, God. I pray that for many of us who are experiencing such hardships and heartaches and pain and suffering today, we would be comforted knowing that we worship a God who is there, who understands what we're going through, and who is too good to leave us there. We love you. 
we look to the cross, especially as we head towards Easter. May we not be um, in a hurry to overlook the ugliness of the cross. May we not be in a hurry to rush past Good Friday where we remember what you did for us. But we pray that all of it together would come as this beautiful story that transforms our lives, that makes our faith so wonderfully unique. A God who would die for us and a God who would rise again in victory. We love you, God. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.